All right. Our third segment of this program, we sometimes do obituaries, and I'm going to tackle one now that I am, um, well, I'm a little scared of. Lou Reed passed away last week, and I, and I have to say that in death, I don't understand him any better than I did in life, which is to say that I didn't get him at all. And that being the case, I think I'm just going to confine myself to quoting from uh, the obituaries that appeared in The Week and The Economist. Noted The Week, Lou Reed was the poet laureate of urban lowlifes. Pale, sullen, and almost always dressed in black, he eulogized the denizens of New York City's underworld in his two-chord songs and introduced taboo subjects like cross-dressing, drug abuse, and sadomasochism into the American pop repertoire. His gritty writing with his celebrated 1960s band, The Velvet Underground, and in his four-decade solo career, came from first-hand experience. He binged on drink and drugs for much of his adult life, and between his first and second marriages, lived openly with a transvestite named Rachel. When he arrived in Sydney for an Australian tour in 1974, a reporter asked him, Are you a transvestite or a homosexual? Reed replied, Sometimes. Noted The Economist, the world of Lou Reed was one of continuous contradictions, a good thing canceled by a bad thing, and vice versa. His music heavily influenced the rock and punk bands that followed him, so much so that he was said to have revolutionized the scene. But he and the Velvet Underground, the band he formed and led from 1965 to 1970, never sold that many records. He stayed subversive, a dark force, a cult. Parents did not approve of him if they even knew. They noted his style was to often mismatch melody and words, or sing flat, or comment as if he was on the sidelines rather than in the song. Critics struggled to grasp what he was up to, and he couldn't have cared about their receptions, deceptions, hellos, goodbyes, huzzas, hurrahs. He wrote for himself, and if it was ugly to others, quote, you think what you're making is beautiful, unquote. Noted the week, the Velvet Underground's art rock caught the attention of Andy Warhol, who included the band in his multimedia show, The Exploding Plastic Inevitable. The pop artist also produced the group's debut album, The Velvet Underground and Nico, which was filled with screaming feedback and matter-of-fact descriptions of drug use and S&M. It was a commercial flop, as were the band's three subsequent albums. But said the New York Times, it had a profound impact on the high IQ, low virtuosity stratum of punk, alternative, and underground rock. Reed quit the band in 1972, moved to London to record his self-titled first solo LP. It was limited success, but its follow-up, the David Bowie-produced Transformer, brought Reed the wide following he never attracted with the Velvet Underground, according to the Daily Telegraph. It yielded his only hit single, Walk on the Wild Side in which Reed reminisced over soft, jazzy backing about the hustlers and transvestites in Warhol's entourage, even slipping a reference to oral sex past radio censors. Yet, in what was to become a career trademark, Reed retreated from the commercial success of Transformer to make the darker, less acceptable concept album, Berlin. His 1975 album, noted The Economist, forced out of him, it was said, by a recording contract, was four sides of feedback from an electric guitar. He said he knew no one who would listen to the whole thing. Noted the economist, the man could be just as perplexing and played it up. Was he really a badass city boy? In fact, he came from the New York suburbs, and for two years, between leading the Velvet Underground in 1970 and making his first solo album, he worked as a typist in his father's accountancy firm. 
The Economist noted that he was tantalized by literary greatness, but labeled as a rock musician. He was crushingly rude to those who tried to analyze him. He preferred to leave them in confusion. Perhaps, as his song said, he wanted to nullify life, or perhaps, contrarywise, he was high on it. The world he sang of was very often vicious, decadent, and dirty. But he said later, my heart was pure, and my soul was pure too. The week concluded by noting that in the end, Reed reveled in his music's simplicity. He once said, one chord is fine. Two chords are pushing it. Three chords, and you're into jazz. Lou Reed, a bit of an enigma. That's just about all I can add. A thousand dreams Different colors made of tears. All right, I talked at the top of the show about uh, how I was uh, out of it for much of the past week with uh, with sickness. I just want to reflect a few minutes on the fact that, um, boy, when you're really down, you really have no surplus energy. Life just looks different. In fact, it's hard to keep your mind off of doom and gloom and morbid thoughts and just bad stuff. I remember being taught in medical school that uh, learning, and I think to some degree experience, is sort of state-dependent. This conclusion came from uh, experiments with rats where they would get them drunk, run them through mazes, and find out that they later did better in rerunning those mazes when they were again drunk. In other words, learning appeared to be state-dependent. If you're drunk and you learned it, well, then it helps to be drunk again. And no, I haven't spent much time in the last week being drunk, but, uh, but I think that when you're in a bad, negative, painful state, things that happened to you in the past that were bad and negative and painful just kind of sort of uh, impinge on your mind somehow. I think this is why humor and levity and fun stuff actually have health value. And I sure as hell didn't invent that theory. But I did decide while I was down to just try and indulge myself in fun stuff. And I'm here to tell you, based on uh, some limited results from my limited clinical trial, I, I do think it helped. So I have to confess, and I probably shouldn't do this, but I did watch some Pawn Stars, <laughs> which I have to note is apparently the second most popular quote-unquote reality show on television. I think I've complimented it before. I do note that it is fantastically well-produced piece of work, even if it is at times contrived and it's at times obviously pretty phony like all reality TV. But I think the secret to its success is that they call in numerous local experts in a variety of fields when they're trying to appraise certain items. And in, and in doing so, you'll learn a lot of history. You'll learn a lot of just stuff that's quite fun. So I indulged in watching Pawn Stars. I went over to my video, I still have some VHS and DVD collections, and pulled out uh, some things that are worth a laugh. And uh, I, I do put somewhere high on this list of items you might want to check out if you're feeling low. Rob Reiner's The Princess Bride. I think Rob Reiner's great work is This Is Spinal Tap, which I would regard as the greatest comedy movie ever. But in terms of just sheer charm and fun, The Princess Bride is not too far behind. It just has so many amusing little lines. Like when Billy Crystal as Miracle Max is trying to uh, revive the dread pirate Roberts and advises people not to rush him. <laughs> he says, if you rush a miracle man, you get lousy miracles. Well, when the character Vizzini is asked if he's smart, <laughs> he replies, 
You heard of Aristotle, Plato, Socrates? Yes. Morons. Great movie, and when I got done watching it, I felt just a little bit better. The greatest of all the Inspector Clouseau movies, A Shot in the Dark, that didn't hurt either. But in an odd way, a real perker-upper when you're feeling down is a a look at truly bad movies. The classic from the late 1970s, The 50 Worst Films of All Time, is uh, something that I think is, is a mood elevator. And from that spun an interest in really bad movies, which led to Plan 9 from Outer Space becoming uh, basically a a household name, along with its director, Ed Wood. Even led to the movie of the same name, uh, featuring Johnny Depp. I think I'll close today's program by uh, excerpting some of the work of Harry and Michael Medved in one of their sequels, which was called The Golden Turkey Awards. In a chapter titled The Biggest Ripoff in Hollywood History, they uh, nominated... Several candidates, among them Dino De Laurentiis' 1976 version of King Kong, to quote from the Medved brothers. In his $24 million monkey shine, producer Dino De Laurentiis managed to rip off two quality films at once. The first victim was the original Kong, the 1933 classic, which had its plot distorted just enough to make it laughable. De Laurentiis also paid close attention to Jaws, which had demonstrated the enormous box office potential of giant animals that are both deadly and fascinating. With his new Kong, De Laurentiis planned to go Spielberg and co. one better. He explained to New West Magazine, Nobody cry when Jaws die, but when the monkey die, people gonna cry. Intellectuals gonna love Kong. Even film buffs who love the first Kong gonna love ours. Why? Because I no give them crap. I no spend two, three million dollars. I spent 24 million on my conch. I give them quality. I got here a good love story, a great adventure, and she dated PG for everybody. None of the Medveds, well, not exactly everybody. In fact, King Kong emerged as one of the top vote getters in our readers' poll for the worst film of all time. Before its release, however, nearly everyone expected a tremendous success. Initially, Universal Studios fought De Laurentiis for the rights to remake the 1933 RKO movie. Once they got that settled, they had trouble finding a leading lady. They settled for Jessica Lange, a fashion model with no previous acting experience. They note that the lines given her by Lorenzo Semple's simple-minded script did not help her cause. After she's captured by the giant gorilla, she begins punching his naugahyde nose and yells, Put me down, you male chauvinist pig ape! When Kong loses his temper, she apologizes. I didn't mean that. I swear I didn't. Sometimes I get too physical. It's a sign of insecurity, you know? Like when you knock over a tree. Noted the Medveds, with all the ballyhoo, the film actually wound up making money for its producers, but far less than expected. Despite the disappointing public response, De Laurentiis forged ahead with his plan for a sequel. Originally called King Kong in Africa, this prospective film was locale shipped to the States and became... King Kong 2. Dino De Laurentiis told columnist Mary Murphy about his plans for the future. I am a think about maybe I no do. But I tell you what, ingenuity we plan and you tell me what you think. Kong lay dead. And how you say, scientists come along and take apart and Kong come like Frankenstein, you know Frankenstein? And he come really bad. He kill everybody. And Duan, Jessica Lang, she's now big time movie star. She say, hey, Kong, remember me? She jump in his hand. He pick it up, put it to his face, smile, and then, womp, he eat her. You like Mary? Evidently, 
Mary Murphy declined comment. And uh, in their category for Worst Director, among the nominees were, of course, Ed Wood, which they wind up giving the award to. But I'd rather talk about one of the runner-ups, Phil Tucker, who produced the movie Robot Monster, which did make the original list of the 50 worst films of all time. Noted the Medveds, what made Robot Monster ineffably worse than any other low-budget sci-fi epic was its bizarre artistic pretension. The robot gorilla, in this case they had to settle for... (laughs) A man in a gorilla costume wearing a diving bell helmet with the old rabbit ear TV antennas sticking out the top. The robot gorilla delivers a long introspective soliloquy while speaking directly to the camera. To be like the human, he passionately declares. To laugh, feel, want. Why are these things not in the plan? I cannot, yet I must. How do you calculate that? At what point on the graph do must and cannot meet? Yet I must, but I cannot. It's a bad movie, hilariously so, and I, and I highly recommend it. And I think I've told this story before, but doggone it, I'm going to close with it today. Back when I was in medical school, they had a bad film festival over in Newport Beach, and Mark Shusick and I think Kathy Bretzius and I went over to go take in Robot Monster. And of course, that's soliloquy about him being a role man versus the human that was here on Earth. And at one point, after his calcinator death rays apparently wiped out most of the human race, this brute of a robot monster snags one of the survivors, a little girl, throws him over his shoulder and starts marching away from the camera. Now, not long before this, a notable film director had gotten into a bit of trouble over a, uh, an incident in a hot tub involving a 14-year-old girl, which inspired a wag in the back of the audience that night to shout out, when the robot monster grabbed the little girl to march away. Hey, Roman Polanski! Which, for my money, is still the best damn ad-lib from an audience I've ever heard. We are out of time. Before going, I would note that not only was this program produced by Edward McMillan, but also that all the opinions expressed in it are that of the host alone and do not necessarily represent those of KDVS our sponsors, or the University of California. Although, doggone it, we're almost never wrong. Our thanks to James Eugenio. He'll be back in the future. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time.